0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, Life Coach, and Recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hey, Ted. Thanks so much for coming on and doing this show with me. I'm Super excited to get into this conversation because what you did is so fascinating and I have so many questions. So I'm really excited to dig in. Why don't we take a second and just tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do?
1: Well, thanks, Angela. And thanks so much for having me. I'm, you know, as I told you, I'm a big fan. Well, I'm actually I've had several different careers, and um, I started working in the Hollywood studio system at Warner Brothers and Universal. I had a background in television, private television in Europe for a while, and uh, then I started working in independent film financing. I started doing productions and co-productions, film licensing, and then I got into screenwriting, which was a passion that I had sort of buried for a long time. And I decided, well, you know, I've got to do this. I've got to. I've always wanted to write a screenplay, so. I wrote a screenplay and I sold my first screenplay like out of the blue and it got made into a movie and then I sold more screenplays and I became sort of like a pretty pretty uh, successful working screenwriter and and then I got involved in university lecturing and travel and uh, VOD and, and content distribution etc and then uh, I got into a little bit of trouble with alcohol and I decided to do something about it and I And I decided to uh, start attending AA meetings. And then I started, I gravitated over to 12-step meetings. I'm sorry, to to Smart Recovery meetings. And then I decided, you know, I like Smart Recovery. So I became a Smart Recovery facilitator. And then I started doing videos and marketing for Smart Recovery, the organization. And that just opened up this whole sort of world of people in recovery that I fell in love with. And now uh, I'm just pleased to be part of this in my own little... Niche, which is writing this book um, to talk about my experience of recovery and how movies can can help people in that process and that conversation.
0: Yeah. I, what an incredible career, too. So tell me a little bit about your journey with your own drinking. Like sure. at what point did you understand that this was a bigger problem <laughs> than just, oh, I need to cut back or, you know, right. I have to put down the alcohol?
1: Right. Well, it's funny. Alcohol has been sort of my life story in many regards. Um, not that I started drinking when I was five, um, but uh, my father was a diplomat and he and my mother, part of their job was we lived in all these different countries, but part of his job was to give parties, cocktail parties constantly. And so growing up, we were always having cocktail parties. I was always filling drinks and you know, delivering hors d'oeuvres and talking to people. And and part of that was sort of like U.S. diplomacy is based a lot on cocktail parties and getting people a little bit loopy so that they, you know, spill trade secrets and like, when are the Soviets going to invade Afghanistan kind of a thing. And um, I actually wrote a script about that, which is a whole other story. But but um, and then so then moving into the film industry in my adult years, you know, I, I realized that there was a lot of drinking in that, too, and a lot of socializing. So I had to buy drinks for movie stars. I had to take clients out for dinners and drinks You know, anytime I went to China or Korea or Hong Kong, you know, the drinking culture, bonding culture, business bonding culture was very alcohol centric. And so, you know, and it was all very manageable and it was all very great for a long time. First class travel, you know, business class lounges, free drinks everywhere. You know, it was all part of the of the the allure of that. Like in many ways, that was the whole point of having a great job, you know, in the movie business and the Cannes Film Festival. you know. Every night, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, you're you try to get into the, this hot party so you can have a drink with Harvey Weinstein, or or maybe not Harvey Weinstein, but you know big producers, and try to cut deals. And all of this was done in the sort of ensemble experience of alcohol. And but then, as I got into screenwriting, I started and producing and independent producing and independent screenwriting. I started to see these these lulls in activity, whereas before I'd been like breakneck schedule, always meeting deadlines no day drinking it was all social drinking suddenly i found that i was drinking to pass the time or to procrastinate or waiting for notes to come through or waiting for a movie to go through or waiting for the payments to come or and so there's a lot of waiting around in the film business things happen very quickly and then suddenly it's it's the the mantra here is well just hurry up and wait um and and everybody in the film industry knows that and, you know, people adapt and, and a lot of people in my circumstances also turn to drugs and alcohol and not just me. But I did. And I realized that was a problem. And so it was affecting my my family life and my marriage and my, my health. And and just I wanted to be I didn't want to be that guy anymore. So I, I just quit and um, I stopped and I put all my dream team together, of like a therapist, you know, my sister, my family my, my friends, um, and being very public about my, my issues with people by a writing this book, you know, working with smart recovery, um, and being a smart recovery meeting facilitator. Now I have this great, fantastic group of people who also support me in my journey of recovery. Um, and so, yeah, my, you know, people ask me sometimes about my rock bottoms and yeah, I was the guy that would go to Seven Eleven, you know, every morning and buy a 12 pack. And uh, that was not cool. That was not a way to live my life anymore. So um, I became very physically dependent on alcohol and uh, suffered great anxiety if, it, if I didn't have alcohol set up to drink during the day or if I didn't some, have something planned. So I was realizing that I was rearranging my real life to accommodate my drinking schedule, which was absurd. And so I decided that's, that's some sort of, I'm I'm missing out on life and life is offering me so many wonderful things right now, you know, with work and my family, my kids, everything that I decided to change, change course.
0: That is such an important piece that you just said to understanding or coming to the realization that you were rearranging your life to accommodate your drinking. You know, I always talk about it in terms of like our level of commitment, And I was so committed to my drinking and my lifestyle that I was willing to sacrifice anything. You know, I would sacrifice friends, relationships, my integrity, I mean, whatever (laughs) whatever it took, right? I was so committed to it. And it's such an important piece of it, though, because I feel like when you start to connect those dots and connect those pieces, you start to understand really how much bigger it is than just drinking. You know, there's a much bigger picture happening. Yeah, Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I'm I'm glad I I stopped and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I love to be able to help other people stop whatever it is that they're doing because of having gone through experience and understanding, you know, that those feelings that you get when more than anything, the frustration of like constantly cogitating and always thinking about drinking or using, it's just exhausting. And now to be freed to concentrate and think about other things is very liberating. That to me is like true freedom.
0: Um, Yeah. Now, how did you know to put a team of people together? Because you're one of the only people I've ever heard say that, like you decided you had to quit drinking and you started putting this team of people together. Um, Not many people would have that foresight, you know? So how did that come to you? Or is that just how your brain works? Like I'm a little bit like that, right? Like I always want, I want to start something different or new that I don't really know about. And I'm like, okay, who can help me? Who can Mm -hmm. be my mentor? Who can I learn from? Who can guide me? How did that work for you to put your team together? Well,
1: uh, thanks for that question. That's because you know, it really made me start to think and remember why I did this, but you know, my attempts to quit by myself, to keep this a secret, to not reveal that Because it would reveal weakness or maybe somebody wouldn't hire me or that somebody would find out and I wouldn't get a gig or it would destroy my life or whatever. And so I realized that I was being very secretive and very personal about it and thinking, I can do this all by myself. And my previous attempts to do it, you know, had run into problems. And I realized that I actually kind of needed to externalize the conversation outside of my mind so that it was more so that it was more an objective reality as opposed to a subjective mind fuck that I was going through in my own head. I'm Is that okay to say that word? I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: So, and so instead of just going through that mental process all the time, all by myself, I decided, well, I've got to reach out. And so, you know, if i have some issues from my past i'd like to talk to them with a psychologist if i've got some anxiety or depression issues which are maybe clinical i should go see my psychiatrist and 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 i'm on some antidepressants medications that are very generic ssris which have helped me immeasurably in my in my frame of mind and and are also used by a lot of people very successfully and then um you know doing the mutual support thing i thought was very very important and a, not just participating and being able to talk to other people about our shared experiences and our urges and everything, but to have like a mechanistic approach, a roll up your sleeves, get the work done, use a workbook, fill it out, which is part of the smart recovery you know, experience. I thought that was a really great way of going about it as well. And then, you know, by continuation, actually the dream team was the icing on the cake is, is doing the book because it's like now I'm documenting what i want what i've wanted to say what i've experienced and what i've what i think people might be interested to hear about how movies helped me and, and part of that whole thing that part of the dream team was i'm gonna start watching movies so i watched 100 movies in 100 days and uh gosh darn it it really helped it really worked
0: okay i want to dig into that 100 movies in 100 days because i, I have questions okay. but i want i want to ask one thing before we get into that part did you have the experience of losing things in your life? And I ask this because a lot of us didn't lose everything. You know, I feel like there's this common story that that really gets a lot more publicity, right. Right. you know, in the I burned my life to the ground. I went to prison for seventeen years. you know all of this stuff, but for a lot of us, that wasn't our story at all. A lot of us were very high functioning, successful yes. people with money right. in the bank, and we were fine. So yeah. what was your experience there? Did you lose relationships, money, jobs, houses, any of that stuff? <laughs>
1: luckily, I didn't. I stopped before it got into those consequences. and luckily, um, I I could see far enough ahead that I knew where it was heading, and I knew that I had to make a change. And there was part of me that said, "Screw it! I'll just let all this stuff happen, and I'll deal with the consequences later." I don't want to make a decision right now, but I re- realized that that was going to get me into trouble. And I had everything to lose: money, house, all these things that you mentioned. Um, but more than anything else, um, I think you know I was lucky that nothing bad happened. Um, but um, more than anything, I feel bad that you know there were lost opportunities that you know I think. The, it, alcohol clouded my judgment when there were times when I could have done something that would have led to something really amazing, but it didn't because I was too busy drinking or, you know, maybe the way that I thought about an opportunity or a person or a situation was clouded and muddled by the fact that I was in my addiction and that maybe I made the wrong decisions and could have done things better. And so I don't, I'm not the kind of person who wants to live with the regret. And I think regret is one of the most toxic feelings that you could have. And I just didn't want to be riddled with regret for the rest of my life. And so I decided that, and yes, I still have regrets, but everything that I do now going forward in sobriety is to eliminate and never create regrets for myself. And one of the regrets I would have had is to never write this book. So I vanquished that regret by writing a book, and now I've got other projects that I want to engage in. To know that I've been able to fulfill all the potential that I have in this world to help people and and to do things that I find are useful and helpful, and that's and you can't you know you can't do that. You know, alcohol and drugs it just inevitably, at least for me, will always lead to regrets, and that's that's a really bad currency in, in somebody's healthy mental life. I think.
0: Yeah, amen to that. Okay. Let's get into this book. Okay. For the audience, Mr. Perkins decided to watch a hundred movies in a hundred days, a hundred movies about addiction or with addiction storylines. Am I saying that correctly?
1: About addiction and recovery, either showing addicted people, showing recovery, showing both. Okay. You know, some, something having to do with where addiction recovery is like one of the central elements that if you took it out, it wouldn't be a movie anymore
0: okay perfect now what I want to know first is was this the plan from day one like did you say I'm gonna do a hundred movies in a hundred days or did you say like I'm gonna I'm laying low I'm gonna start watching some movies and it was, then it just evolved into a hundred movies in a hundred days
1: yeah it, it evolved it was definitely the latter I you know as you know when you when you get sober and I was waiting around for TV deals to happen and I had money in the bank so and I'm new to sobriety. I'm like, all right, well, I've got a lot of time to fill, and so what do I do? And so I had my iTunes account and my, you know, my 85 inch TV. And I thought, all right, well, there's some really great movies out there. I'm gonna just start watching movies. So I just started watching movies. I made a lot of popcorn, I drank a lot of Diet Coke, and um and I wanted to get through them. Before I knew it, I you know, it was over hundred movies, and I realized that I wasn't running out of movies. There are still more movies. And I would ask people and tell people, and they'd be like, have you seen this movie? And I'm like, oh, my God, you mean that's not on my list? i got to go see that movie. So it became sort of like this thing that evolved after I decided to barricade myself in my room and watch movie after movie after movie. Um, I I, feel
0: a little surprised that you found 100. Oh, (laughs) there's there's
1: more. There's more. There's like at least three or 400 movies. And if you go deep into the past, um, movies that probably are not even available on streaming platforms are so old. They're movies made in the 40s, 50s and 60s, underground movies, independent films that um, are quite like, you never know about them, but they're like, they were made, you know, and maybe nobody yeah. saw them, but maybe they were in a drive-in movie somewhere. or Perhaps they were so depressing that nobody really liked them. And so they got shelved. And, you know, I, I think most people don't know this, but Of all the movies that have ever been made, uh, something like 60% of them are in a vault somewhere and have never been seen. So, you know, a lot of those, some of those movies are about addiction and recovery.
0: Well, that sounds like a big waste of money.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, if there's one thing that the movie business does really well, it's waste a lot of money.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can see that with all the waiting. I was laughing when you were talking about hurry up and wait because I have a lot of actor friends, of course, and stuntmen, some really great friends of mine are stuntmen. And that's what they always talk about is how much waiting, like everybody thinks it's so glamorous, like to be on a movie set, but you're really standing around doing a lot of nothing most of the time.
1: (laughs) Well, that's actually the thing that I most hated about, um, production was the waiting around. I mean, I would, I would be an executive producer, producer on a movie and I'd go and I'd be hanging out with the movie stars, but we'd all just be sitting there waiting for the director to do a next setup. And it's distinctly unglamorous. I've got to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's what my friends say too. Okay. So when you watch all of these movies, what do you feel like was your greatest lesson. Like you had to be having major light bulb moments and connecting dots in your own journey, especially if you did this really at the very beginning of your sobriety. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the things that really stood out to you through watching all of these movies?
1: Well, I think what movies do really well and which is why movies are so successful as an art form is that they really they show conflict, they show heroism, and they show emotion. And they convey emotion very powerfully. That's why, you know, people, you know, when you think about it, paying all this money for parking and to go buy popcorn for $20 and, you know, movie tickets and everything to sit in the seat, you're trying to get something and one of the most important things that you can get are these really emotionally poignant uh, moments and to move you to cry you know that's what that's what great drama great you know story does for people and I started to see that like you know I could read twenty or thirty books about addiction and recovery and I did <laughs> I read all the books I had the time I you know look at my library it's filled with with uh, quitlet and yet, you know, I was finding that the moments and the sort of like the messaging that I was getting from great films and the the introspection I was getting from these great films was so much more powerful and poignant and direct than what I was getting from these books. And the fact that also, you know, when you're reading a book and, and again, this whole idea of subjectivity and objectivity, w- when you're reading the book, it's a sub- it's a very subjective experience within your own mind. When you start looking at other people outside yourself, who are doing the things that you were doing when you were drinking. You know, it's an objective representation of the person people perceived you to be and the person that you probably were or the person that you were destined to become if you would continue drinking. So those are very powerful subjective representations. I'm sorry, very objective representations of what is, what is at, at stake and the emotional toll that that inflicts. And then you see... Other people's reactions to other people's problems with drugs and alcohol, and the incredible heroic efforts that people put into it, and the incredible, uh, you know, fantastic endings and and these climaxes of like you made it, you're going to live, you know, you made it through recovery, etc. And when you put all that stuff together, I realized that those those kinds of tools in in the conversation about addiction could really help people in a way that that just merely uh, talking or reading couldn't and so i wanted to add you know film appreciation film analysis and film and story to the conversation about addiction and recovery and that's why that's why i wrote the book and that's that's the point that i really wanted to make in the book
0: yeah what was your favorite movie out of everything you watched and why
1: oh that's a great question um there were so many great films, and I think every movie is different. Like, you know, I, I talk about Lost Weekend because it's one of the oldest films about, and one of the first films about alcoholism as a, as a disease um, at the time. It was at the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, so it was very, like, a historically relevant film that won an Oscar and it won the, the Palme d'Or. It was the first movie that ever won both uh, awards. And, you know, Paramount almost didn't release it. They got offered $5 million from an alcohol company. And then, you know, leaving Las Vegas almost wasn't made. But that's that's very powerful in a very different way, with a very different messaging, because it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. But maybe that that's there to teach us something profound about, you know, recovery. It's not always a guarantee. And then I think... Uh, you know, there's other movies that I thought were, were were brilliantly executed for different reasons, like the family and friends issue, you know, sons and daughters, mothers and sons, mothers and daughters, etc., in and different films. But I think overall, in the conversation about mutual support and 12-step and meetings and, you know, recovering, I think Thanks for Sharing is a wonderful film. And I think it's the longest chapter in the book. It's at the end of the book, actually. And I think it's powerful because... Uh, at the time, it was sold and marketed as a movie about a bunch of sex addicts, and that's really what was the. But it was a it was a false flag operation. It was sort of like a red herring. It was dangling a carrot, be like, let's get a bunch of people to get interested in a movie about sex addiction. But once that's put aside, after the first minute of the film, it's really a movie about people dealing with all addictions: alcohol, drugs, sex, what have you, and and going to twelve step meetings and sharing their thoughts. And so it does a wonderful job of conveying what mutual support can do, how these people are, you know, going day in, day out to these meetings, fighting the good fight, relapsing, coming back, fighting it out, you know, dealing with friends and family, relapsing again, getting back on the wagon. You know, it's heroic and everybody has, you know, and the story weaves in together these great acting like, you know, Tim Robbins and Gwyneth Paltrow and Mark Ruffalo and Josh Gad and Pink. The singer Pink, she steals the movie with some of the stuff she says in the movie. I think it's just like the complete package, a movie that sort of encompasses a lot of issues. It touched me uh, emotionally very much on, in the way that like, you know, how I you know certain people, you you expect your loved ones to forgive you now that you're sober. And that doesn't always happen on your timeline. That's talked about in, in the film. You know, the, the fact that somebody who's in, in sobriety for a long period of time, like Tim Robbins, he thinks he knows what recovery is. You've got to go to the meetings. You've got to be in the rooms. And his son doesn't really want to go that route. And so it, it, it creates a, a clash. And, and, you know, so there's just a lot of dynamics in that movie. And it's, it's sort of like a popcorn movie, but it's so much more than that. So I think it's, it's, it's the top of my must-see must list for movies about addiction recovery. Sure. I
0: love that. I will definitely be watching that now after hearing all of that. <laughs> That's definitely on my list. You know what I loved about leaving Las Vegas is I felt like it was the first time that I had seen something that really accurately depicted the internal pain of alcoholism, you know, because It is. And as alcoholics, you know, we get a bad rap and and rightfully so in a lot of ways, but it's so baffling for the people around us. You know, Mm -hmm. like people want to think and judge with a rational mind what you're doing in a compromised and irrational state of mind. Uh and. It's so confusing in so many ways and nobody yeah. understands. Like they just see the actions we take, the mistakes we make and the mess that we make. Everybody on the outside sees that but nobody really gets to understand how badly we feel on the inside. Yes. That never really gets talked about and that's what I felt like leaving Las Vegas did beautifully. It yes. really put a an emotional picture to that internal pain. And, and I appreciate it. I mean, it was heartbreaking, but it's the truth, <laughs> you know, it yes,
1: is the yes. truth, the truth, the truth hurts, but it's, it's very important to see it for what it is. Um, you know, and I think, and and I tell the story in the, in the book um, about uh, Lila Cazez, who was the producer of the film who's since passed away. She was like a remarkable person. And when she was at Lumiere pictures, getting this film uh, getting financed, you know, I remember we were at universal and, And we were talking about this, and one of the executives that I was having lunch with told a story about how Lila Kazes walked in. She'd given the script to one of these studios, and they said, we love it. You know, Nicolas Cage, not really sure about him, but, you know, we'll make it work. And Mike Figgis, really independent, uh, you know, kind of weird, funky hair. Okay, I guess, you know, with no budget and 16-millimeter camera, we could make it work. But, you know, the ending, really bummer. You know, can we just, like, turn that around and just make it really, you know, he gets out of therapy and he goes on with his life and he moves out to the suburbs and becomes, you know, a a professional and, 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 uh, and Sarah, you know, ditches her job as a prostitute and she ends up being a social worker and they live heavily ever after in the suburbs. And, and Lila Gazez just burst out laughing and just left the meeting and then made the movie that should have been made. And le- thankfully was made, um, which is much more important as a, as a, as a document, as a, as a film. Because, you know, if they, if they had yeah. ended the, the story like that. And in fact, um, also in the book, I mentioned how one of the reasons that the original writer of the, of the novel um, uh, decided uh, to commit suicide just as the movie had entered into production was his fear that the studio was going to gloss over and give it a happy ending. And that apparently was causing him so much anxiety on top of the fact that he was really well advanced in his drinking problem. Um, he actually committed suicide. So it's a very sad story, not just in the movie, but in real life as well. Um, and, yeah. if, <clears throat> and if audiences ever have the opportunity to see Nicolas Cage's acceptance speech at the Oscars that year, he does talk about the writer. It's a very moving tribute to you know, a very, a very sad uh, you know, lost talent.
0: Yeah. What is the most recent film that you watched that's in your book?
1: Oh, um yeah, it's so funny. That's um it's so funny. I just watched it Four Good Days. Uh I just watched recently. And I thought that was terrific and I wrote about it. Um and there's there's another movie with Sigourney Weaver which is on my on my wish list as well, but I'll be watching that tonight. But um Four Good Days is I thought was really powerful because it's sort of like a mother-daughter story and it and it tells the story of like you know, boundaries with somebody who has a problem with drugs and alcohol. You know, here's a situation where, you know, Mila Kunis comes home after God knows how long out on the street using heroin, you know, ruined life, been through rehab, you know, and detox 16 times. Her mother's heard it all. And yet, you know, there's your daughter who you raised, who you love unconditionally. You know, the little baby that you held in your arm when she was young. And she's shivering on the front porch and she needs your help. What do you do? Um, and so that and that's i think is very important to see because it's it really that is so millions of people go through that you know they they need to respect boundaries they need to be healthy themselves in order to help others and it brings up a lot of the issues that family and friends of of people with addiction suffer and how best to help them how not to help them how not to enable them and so the rest of the movie is an examination of a lot of those themes and a lot of those conflicts uh, seen in the film and i think it's a very for, for anybody who has a friend or loved one who is dealing with an addiction and you're trying to help or you want to make a difference in their life or whatever that is, uh, this is a very interesting film that I think has a lot to say about you know, how to get to that finish line and do it in a way that doesn't drive you crazy and ultimately helps in a positive way the person who you're trying to help.
0: Yeah. Enabling is such a challenging thing. I think, especially as a parent, because it is a very thin line between enabling and just loving your child. <laughs> you know, Like that is, yes. it's a thin line and it's confusing. And mm-hmm. I know as an interventionist, it's one of the things that we have to talk about in, in so much detail mm-hmm. when doing that process, right? Because you have to have some healthy boundaries and Yes, you have to know where your line in the sand is, or you are enabling your person, and and that does not serve them. It doesn't no. serve you, and it definitely doesn't serve them.
1: No, and I also bring that up in uh, the movie in the analysis of uh, relationships uh, based on alcohol, and one of the classics for that is uh, Days of Wine and Roses. Then also more recently is uh, When a Man Loves a Woman, and you know where where um, where um, you know Andy Garcia really sort of like tacitly approves of his wife's drinking problem. And he actually benefits from it because she's fun and lively and frisky and sexy and funny and all the things that it's sort of like the ultimate first date. You get to go out on a first date with your wife every night because she's so fun. It's not so alcohol has made her into like his fantasy, of the perfect wife. Yet, you know, when she realizes that she has a problem, she goes into rehab, that wife disappears and now a new version of his wife comes out, and that's really where the story starts. It's, it's more like a story of his recovery from her recovery. And and that's a profound uh, thing to put in a film that, that had never been put in a film before, is how somebody else's recovery can affect a loved one. And what is the basis of love? Are you in love with a person because they drink with you? Or are you in love with a person because they won't tell you not to drink? Or are you in love with a person because you really are truly in love with that person without alcohol. And that's a lot of things, a lot of those questions get asked indelicately or delicately after or during rehab. And sometimes, as you probably know, a lot of people who come out of rehab experience or through sobriety um, end up having to end relationships, not just friends, but with loved ones and partners, because they're just the the foundations of their relationship have changed. And it's difficult to admit that alcohol is a part of any relationship or, mm-hmm. or like the only part of a relationship. But in many respects, you need to say that.
0: And it, it often is, right? Because as a drinking person, I wasn't going to pick someone who didn't drink at the same level I did. Certainly once I was at more advanced stages, right? Where it was the primary consideration in my day-to-day life, right? Yeah. I would only be with people who were the same way. That yeah. is... Actually, When a Man Loves a Woman is one of my all time favorite movies, certainly on this topic, for everything that you said, because it really does show a piece of the puzzle that doesn't get talked about. And certainly from a 12 step perspective, you know, this for me in early sobriety, this was a regular part of the conversation Mm -hmm. that I would hear in meetings all the time. And not, I don't have a spouse, I've never had a spouse, Uh but people will talk about the dynamics changing with their spouse, not even... In the ways that it changes your relationship. Certainly if you got together as drinking people, you dated as drinking people, built your relationship as drinking people, and now one of you gets sober and all the fears that brings up for the other person, how's this going to affect our relationship? How's it going to affect our sex life? How's it going to affect our social life? How are we going to connect with friends? What's this going to look like at holidays when our whole family drinks? There's a lot of stuff that goes on for the partner, but there's also this other piece of that where there can be some resentment and almost some jealousy and envy of the time you spend with your recovering people. And for the addicted person, it's like, this is the first time I've ever been accepted. This is the first time I've ever walked into a room and I felt like I fit in. This Hmm. is the first time I've ever been around a group of people that understand exactly how I am, who I am, how my brain works, have the same sick sense of humor as me, right? (laughs) This is the first time that I've had all of that warm and fuzzy stuff in a group of people. But the person, your person can get pretty sad by that because they're also waiting to get you back. And when you're in early recovery, you're so dedicated Mm -hmm. to that recovery piece. Your person's sitting there going, okay, well, when is it time for me? Because when you were drinking, it was all about you. Right, And it was all about cleaning up the messes and lying for you and covering for you and taking care of the family when you couldn't and, you know, supporting us and whatever the things were. And now you're sober and it's still all about you. Like, when does it (laughs) shift back to the us? And I think that movie just did a really beautiful job of showing this other side. Mm-hmm. of the sobriety thing that most people aren't talking about.
1: Yeah. And I'm, and it was probably one of the more difficult ch- challenging challenging uh, chapters to write because, you know, I, alcohol was part of my existing relationship. I ended up getting a divorce and, you know, we're, st- we're still friends. But I still see the kids all the time. I mean, it's not like a messy thing, but um, you know, there, there was a lot of me, you know, you know, I think my wife, I'm not going to speak for her, but there there's, as I mentioned in the book, you know, there's, you have to there's a sort of like an atonement process and the other person sort of expects you to be like, when are you going to fully apologize? When are you going to fully atone for this? When do you realize that you, what you did was wrong? And and it's very difficult to like, as much as you can say, I'm sorry, or I fucked up or I've stopped. I'm better now. Everything's great. Look, it's the new me bright and shiny new. Don't you see, don't you get it? I'm right here. But you know, consolation doesn't work on another person's timeline. There's, there's, steps that you need to go through. And, and I think people that come out of recovery need to be, uh, and I, and I realized and I learned that I had to be more open to realizing that, you know, my ex-wife or other people that I may have harmed are not going to heal on my timeline. They're going to heal on their that's right. Time. And yes, they are kind of owed something. And, and, yeah. and that feeling is, you know, something that's very powerful.
0: Yeah. It, that's funny. You say that too, because I can't tell you how many times I'm on the phone with a family about an intervention. And they'll say, like, when do they get to the part where they make amends? <sighs> I'm like, we don't even have your person sober yet. Like, we're, <laughs> we're nowhere near talking about amends, right? Like, let's just get the intervention done and get them healthy. We can worry about amends later. That's but that true. is... For the people around us, that is so much on their mind, right? Because they're not facing all the stuff that we're facing. They're thinking, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and you're going to be fixed, and we can go on with our lives, you know? And yeah. it just definitely doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah. And that's and that's why I think a lot of people fail in early recovery. One of the reasons is that everybody wants to check a box. We're a culture that wants quick fixes for everything. Is there a pill I can take? Is there, okay, go to five meetings, we're good. 90 meetings, 90 days, good. Check that box, fine. Rest of my life, got it. Everything's fine. But it doesn't work like that. It's more of a process. And, and I think if, uh, and, and and part of that process with another person in your life is is also a lot of work. You got to roll your sleeves up and go through, you know, the shit as it were.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, did you watch the? I can't think of the name of it right now, but Julia Roberts with her son ben in the back. movie. It is Ben is back. That's what I kept thinking, and I was second yep. guessing myself. Um, okay, I would love to hear your thoughts on that one.
1: Well, Ben is back is a Ben is back is not included in the book because um, I felt that I had already covered the uh, you know mother daughter son father. I wanted to keep it as like a father and son in Beautiful Boy, and a mother and daughter in Four Good Days. And I felt that Ben and Back covered a lot of the things that I had mentioned in those two films. Um, but I've decided I'm going to write a chapter about that for my follow up book, which is too addicted in film, more addicted in film. Number two, But because there's plenty of other movies that I'd love to write about. But that's a very powerful film. And obviously, Julia Roberts does a wonderful performance. And, you know, in many respects, um, I find that it's uh, very much of a simple story. Like, you know, the storyline is. Son comes back. He's a little bit unstable, relapses, buys drugs, owes money. She has to figure out the problem, solve it, gets him into rehab and and good. We're good to go. And it has sort of like, well, we hope that he comes out of it. You know, all right. But I think the dynamic between Julie Roberts and the emotional toll that's taken on her and the bravery that she shows, the courage and the resilience to just keep sticking by her son, to just Not look the other way, not let him go back out on the street and die with a fentanyl overdose like everybody else is. You know, just that courage to do that, all the while doubting what you're doing, conveyed so wonderfully because she's such a great actress. That That is why it's such a powerful film.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a good one too. I just appreciate it when they're more realistic about the journey and what it really looks like for a lot of people because there isn't always a happy ending, right? And it is almost never from point A to point B. You know, there's it's a rocky ride for a lot of people. So I feel like they could. I, I appreciate when that is portrayed in a more truthful manner. And it was one of the things, not a film, but, uh, nurse Jackie, that was one of the things I loved about nurse Jackie because I Mm -hmm. feel like they really, gosh, they did it so well in her consistently relapsing. And every time, like you had hope, you were like, this is going to be it, you know? And, uh, but yeah, I think they did a great job on that. Well, Ted, I have, loved this conversation and I so appreciate I so appreciate what you did and having a book that just comes from such a different place you know that isn't the tragic story of addiction and really showing that this can be a beautiful life. A sober life can be a beautiful life and we have so many lessons to learn, but mm-hmm. we really get to, in, in sobriety, we get to kind of drive the ship where when I was drunk, I definitely was not driving the ship.
1: <laughs> well, that's and that's one of the things that I think uh, motivated the book and what what I write about in the book and sort of like how I end the book is that you know, uh, your life is really like an evolving story and it has heroes and villains and the villain of your story is your addiction and you have to fight against Darth Vader and he's your addiction. And eventually, if you believe in yourself and you do the work, you'll, you'll win and you'll save the galaxy. And, but ultimately, really what you're doing is you're writing your own story. You're in control of the story. You're the, the, you're the screenwriter director of your own life and you have complete creative control and and that's really what you, what I, I think a lot of people can learn sobriety is that like everything is possible in sobriety. You can write any script you want and your locus of control is now external and you can do things as opposed to being so con- constrained by a story and imprisoned by a dead end story, which is addiction. It's, it's a story which usually always ends the same way and it has an unhappy ending. So, don't, you know, We go to movies because we want happy endings, right? So write your own movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. The name of the book is Addicted in Film, Movies We Love About the Habits We Hate. I will link that in the show notes for everybody out there that wants to grab that. You can get that right from your podcast app. Uh, Once again, it's Addicted in Film, Movies We Love About the Habits We Hate. Ted, thank you so much again for coming on and sharing this conversation with me. It's been fantastic.
1: Oh, Angela, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. How delightful. It's been great.